0: Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. Today, I am speaking with Sarah M. Sarah grew up in Cambodia, where she endured four years of captivity and survived the mass genocide that claimed 2 million lives. It was in 1975 that the Khmer Rouge, a communist group, took over Cambodia's capital city of Phnom Penh, ending civil war in the country, but within hours, a reign of terror began, causing unbelievable human suffering. Millions of people were taken from their homes, tortured for information and forced to work in labor camps, where workers often died of starvation, disease, exhaustion, or murder. Many of those that were brutally killed, they lost their lives and were buried in mass graves in what is known as the killing fields. This is what Sarah survived. She went on to graduate from Western Connecticut State University and is now an inspirational speaker and an author of an award-winning inspirational book, How I Survived the Killing Fields. She is a member of the Women Speakers Association, Toastmasters International, and a founder and director of the Christian Professionals Network of Tampa. Sarah speaks to inspire, motivate, and encourage others to have hope, more courage, and a positive perspective in life. Additionally, Sarah operates her own wellness business, Smart Healthy Living. So, I'm gonna have links to your your website, your LinkedIn profile, your Facebook page. Uh, and I noticed that on your website, there's access to your books and really everything that is Sarah M. Thank you so much, Sarah, for, for agreeing to come on the show and allow me to interview you. I've been uh, really excited about this conversation. I just wanna hear your story. Um, everything that I've read is just, it's extremely powerful and and I'm just really excited about sharing your story with my audience. So uh, thank you so much.
1: Thank you for having me, Dave. It's my pleasure.
0: Well, I, I guess let's start uh, where it all began. You, you were born and raised in Cambodia and you, you said that you were 21 years old um when the Khmer Rouge came in and took over. But that, you know, you had a whole life before that occurred. So what was life like growing up in, in Cambodia before before all that happened?
1: I'm glad to share my my life a little bit with you. I grew up in a small countryside village. In the, in the countryside, in the tropical uh, area, it's, it's very beautiful. It's close to nature. I love the, the setting. We live near the river, the small river, and um, the vegetation, the, the plant, the, the fruit, the animals, and everything. It's just beautiful. I love the nature. And I was a firstborn my parents loved me, so but for some reason I was not spoiled. <laughs> but I feel safe and secure and loved when I um, grew up. I remember my parents always encouraged me to stay in school because uh, they believe that life in the countryside, being a farmer, is very, very hard life. So they don't want me to grow up as a farmer. So with that encouragement kept me in school. But during my teenage year, my mom had an accident. So she became paralyzed from her neck down, she couldn't move. So our family uh, income depend on my mom. She's very clever, very smart business person. Besides being a farmer, she's very smart in business. But when she was sick, nobody do any business. We had to shut down. And in Cambodia, there is no welfare, no social security or anything to help people. We had to depend on our own. When things bad happen, We struggle, so my family struggled through those times, but when, when I took care of my mom and she lay flat on her back for four years, I built that strong love relationship with her because I love my mom. I would do anything to help her to get back up, and I'm not serving her with grumble attitude. No, I love her. I will do everything that need to. And also I have baby brothers. So I t- took care of mom and my baby brothers. So this just gave me so, cr- gave the opportunity for me to love my family, to take care of them and just, just um, heartbreaking when our financial the situation went downhill, we suffered together. We struggled, but we managed. And finally, after four years, my mom feel a little better. And gradually she was able to move and she was able to stand up. And then finally she was walking again. And it's just a miracle. Nobody ever expected that. But, but with her determination, she get well again. And she was able to go back to the marketplace and make a living, and save enough money to send me to college.
0: And your your father um, was was he around during this time? Mm-hmm.
1: And yes, he yes.
0: he continued the farming.
1: Yes, he continued farming until uh, when my mom just before my mom uh, became sick. They gave up farming. They decided to go to the city, uh, another city, um, far away, and start a small grocery business. It's a small shop. So they were they not a farmer at that time. When my mom had an accident, it was during the business time.
0: How, how old were you when your mother got ill?
1: I was about 13, 14, something like that.
0: And and so after about four years, she started to recover. And and I guess she was mobile at the time when the Khmer Rouge came in.
1: Yeah, she was um, mobile. But her she never recovered fully, 100%. She was frail, but she did her best to raise enough money to pay for school and everything for me. But when the Khmeru uh, when I went to college, the college was about 350 miles away from home, quite far. And uh, I flew there. When the Khmerus took over in 1975, in April, the middle of April, they shut down everything. They shut down the transportation, the communication line, there's no more post office. And at that time, there was no phone for us to call. And uh, I was miserably separated from my family. I was agonizing screaming, I just want to go home, but there's no way I can ever go home. So um, they came in and they evacuate everybody from the city. So nobody ever be able to stay at home living in the city again. So the city become like a ghost town. Nobody live in.
0: Where did you go? Uh, when you were evacuated from the city?
1: They just pushed us to go away from the city. So there are many streets going out of the city. And i just followed the crowd. And we went, finally, after a long, long walk, many weeks, um, I end up in the village. The village that was already set up by the Camaros, they already trained people. So um, we came in as their guests, but immediately they sent us to work in the rights field. So the the people in the village, they already expect, expect a big crowd of people to come and they know how to handle it. Right away, I was sent to work in the field and I didn't know how to do it. And I was fearful for my life because they may, they may punish people that don't know how to do anything. But thank goodness, they, was, they want to spread the people out to other parts of the country that don't have enough people. So they make announcement that if, you, if anybody wants to move to Wadamong, uh, please sign up. So baden is the city where I live, where my family lives. When I heard that word, I said, oh, it's me. I love to go. I signed up without knowing that it's just the bus word. They did not take me to the city of baden They They took all the people that signed up to put in the, like, the middle of nowhere. It may be the edge of the province, but it's pretty close to the jungle. And it it was depressing, it was disappointing to say the least. So I realized that I have been cheap. Uh, and big disappointment. And then later on, not too much later, only a few weeks later, there was another announcement. So during this, the beginning of their, um, they took over, they tried to spread people to different places. So um, they make another announcement. They, They say they are looking for single men and women to get trained so that we might have a chance to go to the different village to, to help out other people. So when I heard that, I say, that's me, because I, I just want to keep moving. I'm, I'm hoping that my mood will get me closer to my family. So I sign up again, but this time, big disappointment. I end up in a big camp. One thousand men and women, all single, single, that means we are the strongest, and they put us to work the hardest.
0: was that in the rice fields there as well?
1: Yeah, in the rice field, so Cambodia is very rich in rice before they took over rice field everywhere so um. The way that they put us to work, it's just unbelievable. I remember it about 15, 16 hours a day in the heat, intense heat in Cambodia. It's pretty hot. In the average, about 100 degrees. And we have no time to rest. We work seven days a week. And then they give us very little food to eat. I remember I was so hungry and starved and exhausted. I'm so, so tired. I just want to rest a little bit, but I didn't have time to rest and did not have enough time to sleep. Just a few hours of sleep every night. So when you are in your twenty, you want plenty of sleep. Remember when you were young? I, I remember that. I want so much to sleep, but I couldn't. So eventually, shortly after I end up in this big camp, I contracted several disease. That disease is very deadly. Other people had that disease also. Some disease like malaria, typhoid, high fever, And then my whole body was swelling, puffed up all over. And that swelling, it became, I I emaciated, that swelling just shrink down. Every time I emaciate, I lost about 10, 15 pounds every time. So yeah, I puff up and emaciate, puff up and emaciate, back and forth, back and forth, and I eventually. I became like skeleton, the walking skeleton. It's, I lost all the all the weight that I could possibly lose. So um, they still want us to go to work, no matter how sick we were. If we don't go to work, we don't get food. And they accuse us of, of being lazy if we don't go to work. So I keep moving to work until one day I can't, I can't work anymore. I can't go. So when you read that point, they don't want you to stay in the same camp with the working people. So they send the sick people like me to a different location. It's, they say it's the hospital. They say, okay, you are sick. You need to go to the hospital. When I get to the hospital, I realize it's not the a hospital. There is no doctor, no nurse, no medication. It's just a place you, you stay away from the working people. And um, there are people who were, who were there before me and they are dying. They are dying every day. When I saw that, I realized that this is not a place for me to stay. I need to do something, so I don't know what to do. And I realized that this is this is serious. I need to, to, to do something to save my life. Um, if I keep staying in this place, I will get more disease from other people. But I cannot go back to the working team because I can't work. So I, for some reason, I thought about praying because that's the only thing I can do. I I cannot go out to get something to help me feel better. There's nothing I can do. So I remember when I was young, my mom used to read the book and in one book, it gave me an idea to know that there is God up there, and He's He's big. He's so powerful, and He's so kind. That's all I know. That's all I remember, and I know enough to pray to God. I cry out to that biggest God that I would I dream of. I I imagine that this God is so powerful. So I pray to. To that God and uh, prayed night after night. And then one, one day when I woke up, I feel like, ah, oh, I have a little bit of energy. Maybe this is the day that I can run away from this place. So I did, I sneak out, sneak out. And um, I, I barely can walk. But by the time I get to the other side, where the working people stay, um, there's a one kind lady, one kind uh, team leader. She saw me coming and she took me in her, her arms. She's, you know, she said, "You can stay with me. Let me see if I can find something for you to do." But sh- shortly after, she realized that I'm too sick, and uh, she's the next day she said. I talk to the kitchen staff and uh, and they can have you come and work in the kitchen. So that's like a, a honey to me, like a pleasing word that healed my soul. I said, wow, when everybody was starved to death, I have an opportunity to work in the kitchen. That means I have more access to food that means I work in the shade, now in the intense heat, 15, 16 hours. I work less hours. So my dream came through. My, my prayer was answered. God gave me that, that chance to rest, to restore my health. So little by little, I gradually start to feel better. And I recover my health not 100%, but at least can live a normal life for for a while. So for several months, I worked in the kitchen. I feel much better. And when they saw me look better, feel better, they didn't let me stay there for, for long. They pulled me out. They pulled me out and throw me back into the harsh right field again. And there we go again, I endure four years in the harsh, starving, exhausting condition. So I was always dreaming about running away, thinking, looking for my way out. I I couldn't because there was God God with the big gun everywhere, looking, watching. So I didn't have a chance to run away.
0: Did you ever see anybody trying to escape?
1: There were, but they didn't tell me. I didn't know until, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they sneak out one, One friend that um, used to be in the camp with me, she found me here in the United States. She's in California. And she told me that they forced her to marry another guy in the camp and she didn't want to. So she ran away. And I have no idea she disappeared when, when. What happened? I have no idea yeah there there must be other people that they try to run away and they may may get away or they may not yeah and there are a lot of people that was taken because of their background, so my background was a college student but because of my move different places they lost track and didn't know that I was. A college student. So sometimes bad things can turn out good. My my displace and my disappointment. Although it was disappointing, but at least they lost track of my background.
0: What did they typically do with the uh, the college students?
1: They take away and they um, they beat up and they torture and ask for whatever information they want. They ask for who else and get involved and who, who are these people. And, you know, I, um, I, I don't know, but I was now taken to ask questions. I was now a subject matter. Toward the end of four years, there was some commotion going on. I heard some gun sound in the distance, some rocket sound, some bomb. So I know there's something going on. So this the camp supervisor and leader, they start to move the camp. Well, the camp are the people. You know, we are now not barbed wired with friends or anything. It's just the people, and it's controlled by the people with guns. And when all those sounds uh, start to come up in the distance, they start to move us. They move us to, uh, toward the jungle. So they keep pushing us to get up, get up, and take your stuff and carry a big bag of, of uh, rice, the rice that we produce. Um, So we had to carry the the big bag of rice, very heavy. And uh, we keep moving closer to the jungle. When I realized that we are moving to the jungle. And and at one point, after moving far enough, I realized this is not good. I don't want to keep moving. I don't want to keep staying with them. This is it. I'm looking for my freedom. I'm looking for my family. So I had to do something. So um, again, my prayer, I'm, I'm quietly asking God to help me. So this time, God gave me a courage. Give me a courage to plan an escape. At that time, I was already my health already decline, pretty bad already. So I need some support. So I, I gather three close friends and they are all women. And I ask them, would you go with me if we run away? And they say, yes, yes, they are willing to go with me. So we make plan to run away. We wait until nighttime. We don't know, we don't know the direction because the jungle is quite difficult to tell way or what direction, but we try to track track down where we came from. So we just want to back out. So that's what we are trying to do. So at the middle of the night, when the night is so dark, well, the night is dark because it's the jungle. There's no light anywhere. So we know where the gods are sitting, and we just carefully, carefully step, step away from that place, and we hold hand and we run away. We were walking very fast, and and by the time the morning come, we realize that we are far away from them. We made it. We made it out. So it was one of the scariest events that I ever experienced. Because we know if they ever found us, we never stay alive. It will be right, they they will kill us right there. But God was so good. He directed our step and we did not get lost in the jungle, going round and around. And we, we, we made it out. So I'm, I'm so grateful. So we keep walking, walking away from the jungle, track, track, track back a, a step. And finally, we, when we saw some people, we asked for direction to go to my hometown. And it was a long walk. We stop along the way and asking for the villagers to, uh, for food, for a place to stay. We don't really care. We can sleep on the ground. We used to it for the, four, for the last four years. We can sleep anywhere, but sometimes we need help with the food, with you know, cooking the rice. So after a long, long walk, many weeks, finally got to my hometown but I didn't find my home. My home was destroyed. I didn't find my family there. They, not, they are not there. So I have no idea. So finally I I trace back my memory and I remember my, my aunt used to be a a nurse back before, so I thought that, oh, she might still be alive. So maybe she worked in the hospital. So I went to the hospital. There's only one hospital in that one, that center. So I went to the hospital, I found my aunt. Yeah, she was there. And she told me where my family lived. And from there, I went and I found my family. I am beyond grateful that my immediate family was still intact because we didn't lost anyone. But my aunt, the one that worked at the hospital, she lost two sons and one daughter. My other aunt lost one son and her husband. Oh, my aunt that worked at the hospital, she also lost her husband. So most of the male, adult male didn't make it because of the harsh working condition and the lack of food, the starvation just killed them. And also they sneaky, they, they search that If you are belong to this group, if you have been a a member of this association, if you work for the government and all that, that they will take them away and kill them. So uh, I lost a lot of cousins and uncles. And my husband, uh, who I married, uh, currently married to, he lost everybody in his family, including his parents, his sisters, his brother, nieces, and nephew. So my husband is uh, alive because he was not in Cambodia at the time that the thing happened. He came to the United States for a special project and he didn't go back. So that's how he was able to survive. So that's that's my, my journey to get out from
0: captivity. How did you make it to Thailand?
1: Yeah, after I enjoy my reunion with my mom, with my mom and my brother and my dad for about a year, my mom realized that, you know, the situation is still bad. It's not as bad as before, but, we are dealing with uh, Vietnamese uh, new uh, military um, and we just cannot trust, we, we lost trust of the government since the Camar- communist Camaro took over. So we we don't believe that we can trust the new government. So my mom in her case to protect me as a young single woman, um, she said, you need to go. I said, mom, where? Where do you want me to go? I have been dreaming of this time that we need, I want to be reunited with the family. And she said, honey, this is not safe. There's no future for you here believe me she was very frail if she was strong she would have come with me but at that time she could not travel so she made arrangement with one of her cousins and, and um, we make plan to go to the thai border my my the city that i live in it's it's not too far from the thai border it, it's not too close either so um, we hired a, a motorcycle uh, carrier and they took us to go there. So, when we get close enough to the border, the motorcycle cannot go anymore. So, we have to walk. So, um, we wait until we find a group and other people that may want to go there. So, we wait and then uh, we join the group that make plan to go there. So we did, we crossed the border. That's another dangerous trip because the border, there are mine, uh, landmines, landmine. If We are not careful, we step on the landmine and we get killed. Um, so that remind me of another part of the story. It's not my story, but I realized that God kept me in the jungle four years longer than the rest of the country. The rest of the country had been liberated four months before I came out. Those people that had been liberated, they tried to escape to Thailand at the very beginning and thousands of them got killed because when they crossed over to Thailand, the Thai government, Put all those Cambodian people, refugees, put them on the bus and then dump them at the area where it's heavily landmined. And thousands of people got blown away by landmine and killed. I escaped four months later after the whole country was liberated. So see, there is everything, everything that I did not know until when I look back, I say, there is a reason for everything. A reason why my mom was sick, that I took care of her. That's the reason when I built such a strong love with her, that helped me to stay alive during the difficult time, that I did not give up. And the reason that God protect me from escaping too early, I might end up blown away by the landmine. So, you know, I don't know how how you believe, but that's how I believe, that there is, there is a reason for everything. So when I finally got a chance to cross over to the Thai, border, there was a refugee camp that was set up by the United Nations because hundreds and thousands of people already escaped and the United Nations know about it. And they they start to build the refugee camp. That's when I got there, um, I was the camp was already established. So my mom told me that her cousin um, came to United States in United States a long time ago as a student, so you need to go look for him and he might be able to help you. So that's what I did. When I got to the the Thailand, the refugee camp and um, I made connection with my mom's cousin and he sponsored me to come. It's, it's not immediate. It, uh, I was waiting for more than a year but it's it's worth waiting. So that's how I um, prepare myself to come to United States. And uh, I, I finally got to come here in 1981, landed in Connecticut. Yeah, come from the tropical country, arrived in Connecticut just before winter. Imagine that. I have no idea how to dress up for the winter.
0: You you get to Connecticut, did you immediately go to the university?
1: Not immediately, I I did not speak English. I only know a few words when I came. So I had to find a school to study English and then uh, I have no paperwork to show them that I, I was a college student nothing to prove because I lost everything. So I had to prove myself all over again. So after I learned English, (laughs) I had to go to take GED class and uh, take the exam. And thank goodness, my brain is still working. I still remember something and I passed the exam. (laughs) That was miraculous. I could not imagine because I thought that I forgot everything. I thought that I had amnesia because I tried to remember something in the school, in college, I couldn't remember anything. But when I took the exam, a GED class, I was able to pass. It just, I'm amazed that I can do it. But after I passed the exam, uh, Well, I found a job to support myself and then register for college.
0: What did you do for work?
1: I worked in a factory. (laughs) Yeah, something so that I can earn an income to live and to pay for school.
0: So So you worked in a factory and then you went to school. What did you study? What was your, what did you get your degree in?
1: Yeah, Well, in Cambodia, I study engineering. Because I'm good at math. Math is easy for me. So when I came to United States, when I, I get to college, I major in math again, because it's easy for me. If I do anything besides math, I will be in big trouble because English, I, <laughs> I will have a hard time with the language but math is math. It's the number, it's problem solving. So for four years, I do all the problem solving I could possibly do.
0: <laughs> so after you, you graduate from college, what did, you, what did you do after that?
1: I landed a job in a corporation in Hartford, Connecticut. And um, it was was a very good job, a salary job. (laughs) I enjoy that work, I I love it. But, and then I got married. (laughs) My husband was in Texas and I was in Connecticut. So I had to move in with him. So I had to quit my job and move to Texas. (laughs)
0: now do you have children of your own
1: i don't have any children on my own but i have two stepsons my my husband was the widow when i married him and he already had two sons
0: so and what inspired you to, to write your book
1: well, it's step-by-step step. after people get to know me, they ask me about my background and so on. So I start to tell them one by one, a little bit, piece and bed about my story and everyone was inspired. And it's, they encouraged me to write a book, but it did not give a reason, give me the reason to write a book because it, I just dismissed the idea because you know, English is not my first language, and I barely speak. I, I still spoke uh, broken English uh, um, for many years. And then, uh, and then at one point, I met, well, I was speaking at a small group, sharing my story. And one lady, she was crying. She's, she told me that she lost her child to suicidal when I heard that, my heart was broken and I realized my story probably can prevent more suicidal because if they learn about how hard life can be, they, might, they will think twice about taking their own life. I might be able to give them a different perspective on life. I might be able to encourage you to give them home. So that's the reason I want to write. It's very uh, it's really difficult. I forgot almost everything. It's very hard for me to try to remember, to try to track back um, everything, but I did
0: it. What for you was the darkest period? of your time in, in Cambodia and, and what was, what's the best memory that you have in, in those tough times?
1: The darkest time is that I don't know anything about what happened to my family. I had no news, no connection. I was totally in the dark. That was hard. I never been away from my family that long. Um, the good memory that keep me going is dreaming about them, thinking about them, the possibility, the possibility that we can be together again. And, and also um, the memory of me um, building a, a sisterhood community in the hard time. The people that were in the camp together and we just feel sympathy for each other, feel compassion for each other and just want to help each other. So I remember some nights we talk about a recipe. Can you believe that? When we were so starved, we don't have enough food and we just so hungry and we just whisper whisper to each other, how do I make this pancake? How do I make, how do you make this curry? So it just like, just take us to another space for a while. So sometimes you can find something to entertain even though it's in the hard time. The relationship with other people, how you treat each other, how you help each other, I, I got a lot of help from my, my teammate in the camp because at one point I lost my sight. When, when you don't have enough nutrition, you become blind at night. It's called night blindness. So I was blind for a long time, only at night. The, under the sunlight, I was fine. But when the sun went down, my my eyesight went down, even though I sit near the lamb, you cannot see it's just something to do with the nighttime.
0: for those that may be struggling with their with their own you know, darkness um, that you know, they they might feel like they don't have any hope. What what message would you relay to them?
1: Without hope, that's the killer. You never want to put yourself in the hopeless situation. Even Even though the situation is hopeless, like in my case, but you don't need to feel hopeless you need to find something to hold on to. For me, I feel optimistic. I I feel like this situation may not last that much longer. For some reason, I have an instinct. I just, just a glimpse, just a glimpse of that vision that it may not last that long. A glimpse that one of these days I might be able to see my family. Find some a glimpse of hope to hold on to. That is just like when you are completely in the darkness, trying to look for some light somewhere and you fix your eyes on that light. It will direct you to that light and you eventually will come out to that light. So for me, just fixing on my, Hope and my love for my family that gave me a lot of strength. Although I was in the brink of, of collapsing, I was about to suffocate myself because I was just extremely sick. Um, when I emaciated many times, I lost all the, all the weight that I can possibly lose. I was extremely weak exhausted I was about to die. my friend told me, "Try not to take a nap." And I was wondering why, why do they want me now to take a nap?" And later on I realized many people that took a nap, they did not have enough strength to wake up. It just they are just too too sick, too exhausted. We, we never want to put our mind, our heart, our soul in the desperate hopeless situation. You have to have a glimpse of hope somehow, somewhere. You have to find something to be grateful for. How could I be grateful in the forced labor camp? Well, I'm, I'm grateful that I have a sisterhood that support each other. I'm grateful that they did not take me away to beat me up and torture me for information. And I'm grateful that I have a family, a loving family that I'm dreaming about, reuniting with them. You will have to find something that you are grateful for because that gratitude can change your perspective, can change your attitude to to be hopeful again. Because when we are grateful, we cannot be sad at the same time, it's impossible. Try it, try to be sad and and then be grateful. That's my philosophy that I believe that when you are grateful, you cannot.
0: What are you most grateful for right now?
1: Right now, I'm grateful that I overcame the life biggest challenge. I'm grateful that I'm able to come to live in this beautiful country with freedom with safety, with abundance. I'm not rich, but I, I have everything that I need. So we have to look at our life different way. Um, if, you, if, if people grumble about not having enough of something, you have to look at something that you already have. When when we focus on something that we have, we cannot be grumbled, we cannot be sad. Focus, focus on the already have. Like when you have a, a water a half full, you look at the glass as half full, not look at half empty.
0: When you were able to reunite with your mother in the United States. At at what point was she able to to make the journey to the United States?
1: Yeah, about, about three years after I arrived in the United States, my mom struggled to get out from Cambodia because she was robbed. Imagine, she was so frail and tried to make a living and they robbed her. They took all the money that she earned a little bit, and that made her very really mad. She said, I'm going. I will not live in this place again. So if I die in the middle of my trip, so be it. So she escaped. But her journey was much longer. It took a lot longer than I than I did. When she arrived in the the camp of Thailand with my brothers, the camp was already closed. So so they did not, nobody registered her as a refugee. So she struggled through that limbo. So she was undocumented. My whole family was become undocumented in in the different country. So that's danger. That mean, they live in hiding. They dig a hole under the ground. When the guard come and look flashlight, and look for people, they went under the ground and hide and hid themselves. So that's going on for five years. In the meantime, I was trying every possible thing, try to bring them. So um, I got all kinds of help. I went to Senator, Congressman, and my school, I did the petition and get everything I possibly can do to bring my family here. But nothing worked until I became a US citizen. So that's how I found out. I found out the hard way. Um, At one point, the Senator in Connecticut uh, sent his aide to take a delegation trip with me to Thailand to the uh, immigration uh, service in Bangkok to find out what what needs to be done in order to proceed to this uh, family reunification uh, application. So I found out that I need to become a US citizen. So that means I had to wait five years to apply for it. So that's when the five years come in play. Um, But finally, after, Everything was done, I reapply and then they came in 1980 to, to the end of 1988 and beginning of 1989. That was eight years after I did. Yeah, a long way. A lot of, a lot of hard work, but we did it.
0: What, what happened with your father? Did, he didn't come as well?
1: my father was supposed to come along with my mom and my brother but my dad and my mom didn't get along too well so he probably didn't want to come along with my mom so he stayed behind i was disappointed my little baby brother stopped talking to my dad my dad sending letter after letter and my brother just keep all those letters, stack of letters. He didn't want to open, he didn't want to read because I think he was so mad at my dad that he decided to abandon his his son.
0: So you wrote your book and you started speaking and, and telling your story. And and then also you, you have your own business now in, in Tampa. What is your business in Tampa?
1: The business I started about 10 years ago is the wellness business. The purpose of that business is to help people understand how to, to take good care of themselves so that they don't get sick. Because I know when you get sick, it's not just you that suffer. The whole family suffer along with you. That's from my background, from my experience, and I don't want anybody to get sick. That's, that's the reason behind that wellness business. So I did like a wellness conference, wellness seminar, health fair, and I also um, uh, consult with people to direct them to to find the product that are good quality, that do not have um, toxic chemical, you know, just all kinds of uh, wellness products that they can find at the affordable price and a good quality to, you know, to trust in.
0: If somebody listening wanted to have you come and speak to their organization, um, would the best way to, uh, connect with you would that be to go through your website
1: yeah the, the best way and maybe the best way also they can connect with me on LinkedIn uh, my LinkedIn profile it's um, pretty well laid out also so between the LinkedIn and the website they can find me but I would say website is the most direct they can find my you can email me from there they can find the books my book in there um, i i have two books listed on my website one is how how i survived the killing field and the other one is the collaboration book that i co-author it's called holistic approach It's the wellness book i get to write one big chapter about self-care so uh, Yeah, I would say
0: website, sarahm.com. That's the best connection. I will have links to your your LinkedIn profile and your website in the show notes. So if anybody listening would like to connect with you or purchase your book or one of your books um, or look at having you come speak to their group, it'll be easy enough for them to get in contact with you. Sarah, thank you so much for for coming on and sharing your story with with the audience. I really appreciate it.
1: It's my pleasure. Thank you for letting me share. Uh, Thank you for having me. And uh, I hope the audience um, get enough information. If they still feel that they want to ask anything, feel free to reach out to me on my, my Facebook. I'm not Facebook, uh, on my uh, my website.
0: Oh, okay. well, I did see that you had uh, uh, a link to your Facebook, so I was going to put that in the show notes as well. Okay. Uh, right. yeah. Well, thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Dave. Nice to meet you.
0: Likewise. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence please like and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Follow me on your favorite podcast platform and visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. My goal is and always will be to add value to as many people as possible. So if I can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with me via email or on one of my social media accounts linked on the homepage of my website. Remember, Our failures don't define us unless we let them, and the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.